going to be in 2 Peter today. What an incredible book. You want to read the passage or you want me to? My voice is All right. I'm just going to start with this rather long passage. We're going to read it and then we'll kind of settle in, soak in it, dig in some incredible promises and challenges for us. 2 Peter. So this is the Apostle Peter, if you didn't know, one of the the 12 who was chosen by Jesus, hung around for three and a half years. Peter's kind of a wild guy. So as you get into this passage here, I want us to remember that this is a testimony of his own transformation. It's one of the things about the Bible that is so incredible is that we get the privilege to see the quote-unquote heroes on their journey. And we get to see them in all of their humanity. We get to see them stumble and fall. We get to see them, like Peter, be loud and brash at times and abrasive. We see him, quite arrogantly, to be honest, throw his entire team under the bus. There was a time when he was following Jesus before Jesus' death and resurrection when he says, Jesus said, you are all gonna abandon me at some point, betray me. And Peter says, no, no, all of them will betray you, Lord, but I would never betray you. I mean, he's... That's not good teamwork, <laughs> you know. If you're in a teamwork setting, that's, there's a little, a little uh, clue right there. Don't say those kind of things. Hey, all of these guys are, are kind of losers, but I, on the other hand, I'm the one, Jesus. You can count on me. He says it. It's in the Bible. I love it. Or he's the guy who also, in his attempt to stop Jesus from being arrested, Pulls out a sword and cuts a guy's ear off. I mean, he's swinging for the head. Guy just probably, you know, went like that. So he's ready to go to extreme lengths in some ways for Jesus, but are they, is he thinking God's thoughts or is he thinking man's thoughts? There's that famous rebuke from Jesus after Jesus tells him that he's gonna, that Jesus himself is going to have to suffer and die. We're told famously that Peter rebukes him. Says, ah, no, you're the Messiah. You can't die. How are you supposed to take over the Romans if you're dead? And Jesus quite gently brings him close, whispers in his ear, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) And rebukes Peter back, saying, you're not thinking the things, the thoughts of God, but the thoughts of men. You're not looking at it from God's perspective. This is just you in, you know, in your flesh, so to speak. So uh, we, it's great to see the, the imperfect journey of the followers of Jesus. It's meant to give us hope that this Bible we read is not full of exaggerated stories about these heroes that have no flaws. They're very honest with the, the failures that they go through, the imperfections, the personality quirks, the, the character defects, so to speak. 
And then as you watch the story, you get to see, wow, that's a life transformed. Peter is different than he was on his own strength, without God in his life, without the Holy Spirit renewing him, transforming him, empowering him. And so as we read this passage in 2 Peter, just want to encourage us to remember that Peter is about as wild of a guy that you could find before he meets Jesus. And not necessarily a man of great and high character. Because we even see some pretty low character things after he's been with Jesus for quite a while. And when we put all that into the context of how he has been transformed and essentially he is now sharing his testimony, meaning his story of what God has done in his life. I mean, that's a bottom line right there. If a leader is not leading from what God has done in their life, they're just a faker. So watch out for those people. <laughs> so everything Peter's saying in here to the church, to one of the churches that he planted, it's direct testimony. It's essentially, this is how God has transformed my life in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is the good news that I want to pass on. This is the kind of work that God does in lives, even messed up lives like me. So with those kind of things in mind, let's read this passage. This is 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll start at verse 3. Basically, all he's done so far is say, hello, <laughs> verses 1 and 2, you know, those good greetings. Hello, it's me again, I'm Peter. Good to see you. And he gets right into the crux of his, the urging of his heart. What is the good news that he is wanting to pass on to his beloved church family? First thing, right off the bat, so here we go. God's divine power, verse 3, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual or brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, for if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll pause there for now. 
we started this year with the notion in a vision workshop or a question, what is your vision for the year? What are you aiming at? It is a truth. It is a fact that what you aim at is where you will see a return. Where you invest is where you will see a return. If you're kind of aiming at nothing and just haphazardly putting your time, effort, and energy in all sorts of places, you'll look back on the year and that will be the result. You probably won't have a clear, focused growth and transformation in any particular area. That's why Proverbs 29, 18 says, without vision, people perish, or without vision, the people cast off restraint. Vision is a very good thing. To have a godly vision for your life is essential, and the Bible is full of it. That's part of what makes the Bible so powerful. There is utterly clear vision for our life. If you read the Bible, and by the, the power of the Holy Spirit revealing the nature of God and the message of the Bible to your heart, there's no way you walk away without clear vision for your life. And man, the world needs that. I mean, I, I do a lot of reading and listening about kind of the state of the world and, and what sociologists and psychologists say about the world today and the different generations and the challenges they face and the perceived challenges they face. And one of the biggest challenges in the emerging generations is they say they have no vision. Another way to say it is essentially no clear purpose. Like, why are we here? What's the point? Where are we going? What's the point of it all? And where am I supposed to put my energy? That's tragic. Because if you don't have a vision, despair is going to be knocking at the door. If you don't have something to wake you up in the morning and put your energy towards, then despair will will be the, the bread of, of anxious toil. And one of the things that's so incredible and fabulous about the Bible, there is no lack of vision. This passage by Peter has one of the highest visions you could possibly imagine, which is so great. It's challenging. We're not there yet. No one's there yet, but that's okay. Vision is supposed to be that thing that moves you forward. It is supposed to be that carrot on the stick kind of dangling in front of you, so to speak, that motivates you to keep pressing on. We saw that with Paul, where he talked about knowing Christ and being transformed to be like Christ. That's his high calling, his high aim. And he says multiple times, so he says, so I press on, so I press on. So I press on to that upward call in Christ Jesus. That vision is compelling him, even though he's not there yet, and he knows it, and he says it. And he says it in the passage in Philippians 2 and 3 and 4. He says, not that I've attained it, but I press on. There is something that helps the soul come alive when we have vision in front of us. It's good and healthy for the soul. And I'm coming to that growing conviction that the Bible paints this picture, especially in the New Testament as followers of Christ, that 
God's vision for us, and therefore a vision that we get to adopt, is that we should aim as high as we could possibly imagine. And let that be what propels us forward. That's what Peter does right here. What do I mean by as high as you could possibly imagine? It's right here in verse 3 and 4. God's divine power has given us everything we need. Think of vision here. Everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We've got to kind of break that down. Through our knowledge of Christ, what happens? We have everything we need for a godly life. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. So as we get to know him, we have everything we need for a godly life. That's a weird word, godly, God-like. Through knowing Christ, come on, here's some vision. You have everything you need to grow in a godly life, a godlike life. Now, <laughs> is that sound too good to be true? Does that sound blasphemous? Or is that just the utterly as high as you could possibly imagine true vision for a follower of Jesus? Well, it's in the very next verse. Through these, he has given us, so through these things of his glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises, which we just saw in verse 3, which is that through knowing him, we have everything we need for a godly, God-like life. That's the promise. That's the precious promise. So that through the promises, you may participate in the divine nature. So if there's any question about whether godly is appropriately understood as godlike, that is clearly answered saying through this vision for life, getting to know Christ, through the, the glory and goodness of God, in his promises, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit promised to us all these great promises of knowing Jesus. Through knowing Jesus, his divine power will be with us in a way where we've got everything we need for a godly life. What is that? Participating in the divine nature. Divine nature. Physis theos, it's just straight up, no weird words or translation, divine nature. The nature of the divine, the nature of God. We will participate in it. The, the word there is, it's so interesting, it's become a shareholder or a partner, <clears throat> coin-owned, I think it is. So when it's saying through getting to know Jesus, we may participate, it's 
We will become partakers of, different translations say partakers, participators in, partakers of. We will become shareholders of the divine nature. It's like God has all of it, and he shares some of his nature with us. As we get to know him, he's sharing his divine nature with us until the point that it actually is transforming us to become like him. Incredible promise. Incredible vision. I mean, it's nothing short of knowing him so we become like him. Become actual participators in the nature of God. I read this passage and I'm like, oh my gosh, could you possibly aim any higher than becoming a partaker of the divine nature and through knowing Jesus being transformed to become like God. I can't think of a higher vision for life. I don't think there is one. Be interesting to talk about. Be interesting to brainstorm. As you assess your life and the vision you have, the direction you're going, where you're putting your time, effort, and energy, what you're investing in because you want to see a return, is there possibly something greater than this right here? There's some incredible good news here. I want to highlight that word. What was that Greek word again, the participate? Yeah, like koinon, partakers of. What he said, koinon. Shareholders in. What I love in that, ver- in that word right there is that I feel like it solidifies you know, the idea of a shareholder, if you're a shareholder, you don't own the product, you have a share of it, and our ability to continue to display the character of Christ and have the fruit of the Spirit is completely dependent on our abiding in Him. Because we're a shareholder, We're not the source. So at any moment, if we pull away, we can have crappy character and stinky fruit. It happens to us all the time. For real. I mean, it's the truth, right? You know, you can be operating and communing in the spirit and connecting to him and you're filled with his goodness and power. And then, you know, I mean, I'll wake up, I'm rushed and in a a mood, something happened, I'm... And it's like, whoa, where did that character of Christ go? And yet, yeah, I just, everything, nothing is on our own. John 15, we need to, you know, abide in that vine. He is our source all of the time. And if we're not abiding, if, the, if, the, if we're not abiding in him, we have no fruit to share. We have no nutrients. We have no overflow. And then on the flip side, if we are abiding in him, we have that fountain of living water from John 4 and John 7. And we operate in a place of overflow. And it's also, you know, this, we're going to go into this later. This verse is talking about character development. And it's not something that is instant. It's not something that's forced. It's a lifetime. It's a journey of character development, of being transformed 
one degree of glory to another as we become like Christ. And so there's not condemnation in the moment when we're, oh no, we have, oh no, I had this behavior. So if we go, oh no, I have this heart, I have this feeling in my heart that's not good. I have anxiety. I had judgment. Um, whatever you want to throw in there, whatever you personally or I personally am feeling, our initial reaction should never be hiding and, and, and being ashamed. He died so he could transform us into glory. And as we acknowledge those lifeless places that don't display the character of God, God, I need your help. God, what do we do about this? Transform me as we invite him in. When we see stinky fruit, when we, you know, when we got like the dirty, shriveled raisin and it's not the beautiful, bright, grape, Jesus, what are we going to do about the raisin? And thank you that you're my good, faithful father. And you want to fix these, these, these lines of my vine that are not attached fully to yours, where I'm drinking from other cisterns and where I'm believing the lies of the enemy, almost, oftentimes even just we're unaware of it. But just to come to him, to always bring it back to him. There's never shame. There's never guilt. Godly repentance leads to, leads to transformation. Not hiding, shoving things under the rug, and then just, you know, staying in the, in the grips of the enemy and with the yucky fruit of poor character and habits that we've developed in life. He wants to bring transformation and redemption to everything. He wants us to stay plugged in to him, with him, moment by moment, in everything, and to come to him with every struggle, with every trial, and in any way that we are lacking. That's good. I love that point about it's abiding, it's staying connected, and the fruit is the result. It reinforces what this verse says, which all of this so far that we're looking at, this is the life of grace. These are the free gifts he has given to us. If you look at verse four, it says, through these, these, these promises, this knowing Christ in a way that transforms us to participate in the divine nature, these he has given us as his very great and precious promises. So that word given us is a key one in the New Testament that's linked in a lot of places to God's free gift of salvation. It's granted. The word here is kind of a fancy one. It's to bestow as a free gift. And so all of this that we're talking about so far, it is under that umbrella, which if we're ever not under that umbrella, we're in trouble, of the life of grace. Through these things, he has bestowed upon us the free gift of knowing Christ and thus becoming like him in nature. And so we just have to remember, going into this passage, it's all under this life of grace that God has made possible in Christ. And then it goes on. 
in verse 5, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So the word corruption is an interesting one. It has a sense of moral deterioration. And so there's a picture emerging of two paths that you can take in life, one of virtue and one of vice. If you aim high, as high as you could possibly imagine of knowing Christ and becoming like Christ, partaking in the divine nature in that life of grace, that's one path. That is the path to virtue. And what it says then is, and you will, having escaped the other path, which is moral deterioration caused by evil desires, those impulsive desires that lack self-control. It's the exact same sense that we looked at last week when we looked at the Apostle Paul and where he says, like an athlete, I exercise self-control in all things. I live with purpose in every step. The whole idea is I don't want evil impulses to control me. And so here is a different angle on it, a different apostle, a different follower of Jesus, but it's the same heart, it's the same vision, and it's the same result. If you aim high, as high as possible, which is to know Christ and thus be transformed to be like him, that is going to save you from the other path of a moral deterioration where you just impulsively follow evil desires and it corrupts your soul and you just end up in a place and as a person that you never wanted to be and didn't think it was possible. It's the virtue and the vice. It's very interesting. And this is then where we get a healthy challenge that can ruffle our feathers a bit in the next verses where even though this is all under that umbrella of grace, because it's an authentic relationship, there is a response, a responsibility on our part if we're going to aim high and live into it. Look what he says next. For this very reason, so of essentially pursuing the life of virtue, not vice, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, which is translated, I like a tra- virtue. It's translated virtue. It's the same exact word. I like that better because it's just kind of an, a very appealing word. Do we talk about virtue much anymore? Is, is, our converse, is our society having a conversation about being men and women of virtue, high character? That's this word right here. High character that ultimately reflects the the nature of God, that godly life. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and knowledge self-control. There's that one again. Oh, man, it's in there. Self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly affection, brotherly affection, love. There's so much in there, so... Try to keep it on this amazing, healthy challenge, the part we play, the responsibility we have, because so much is on the line and so much is possible by God's grace 
we are to take responsibility to aim as high as possible and do our part. Listen to what it says. Make every effort to add to your faith. Now, in this context, your faith is a good summary word for your current walk with God. So it's saying, make every effort to add to your current walk with God, your current faith. Don't be content with the status quo. Don't get stuck in the status quo. God's not done with you yet. You still don't look a lot like Jesus. Some more than others. That's good news. That's the, that's the, the hope that's the vision of how much more life can be transformed. Because if my character can become like Christ, man, I can be a victorious conquer, conqueror in any situation. That's what we see in him. But look what it turns to a place that we might not feel comfortable. Make, all right, you want this life? You want, you're going to aim high? You want to become like Christ? You want to partake in that nature of God? You Make every effort. The word effort is zeal. Translated other places, exact word, zeal. Spude, weird word, zeal. An eager diligence. So with eager diligence, we do everything we can. We make every zealous, eager diligence. This is our part. I love it because it's a real relationship. I mean, this, this is not, this is just where we, we, we got to wrestle. We got to wrestle with this. Like we are saved by grace through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. That's clearly in the Bible. You know what's also clearly in the Bible? If you don't make every effort you possibly can, you are not going to reach God's will for your life. <laughs> it's just right there. And all over. This like, <laughs> God's will is that we would become like him, partakers of the divine nature, and grace makes it possible. And then you have to partner with that to make every effort on your part. And I love it because it's just so authentic. There's no point in your life where you're not making an effort towards something. None whatsoever. There is no moment in your day where you are not choosing with your time, effort, and energy what to invest in because of what you value. You can't get away from it. Just think about it. Name a moment in the day where you are not consciously investing time, effort, and energy towards something. I mean, literally, even if you're laying on the couch doing nothing, that is an investment of time, effort, and energy towards something. So it's just human nature. We literally cannot, cannot escape making an effort towards something. We're doing it all the time. And so God is inviting us because he wants to be the treasure of our souls because of grace that has made possible that relationship with him and grace that has made possible the transformation of our character to be more and more like Christ, partakers of divine nature, he's saying, so here, to the degree that you're human and you have a choice, 
You have responsibility. You have real relationship. You have a choice on where you're going to put time, effort, and energy. Make every effort towards what matters most, will honor God the most, and help you step into the highest life of the abundant life that Jesus has for you. It's basically that call to don't settle. Don't settle to live way down here. Don't settle to live in moral deterioration. Don't settle to live on impulsive, evil desires. Those don't have to be your reality in Christ. Outside of Christ, it's pretty much all we're capable of. In Christ, we are now capable of so much more. So think about where we are choosing to spend our every effort and energy. Are we choosing to add to our faith virtue? So there's this circular effect here. As we make every effort on our part, to aim as high as possible, we will partake in the things that are already ours by grace, such as knowing him, his excellence of character. I mean, right, right at the beginning, it's amazing. It says his divine power has given us everything we need. Well, it, divine power, if it's his divine power, why do I need to make every effort? And that's the tension that you need to wrestle with. The answer is what I've been trying to articulate, which is that because it's a real relationship and God's divine power, his grace in our lives, his presence, the forgiveness through Christ, the indwelling spirit through Christ makes possible that knowing Christ will transform our character, but in real relationship, we still have the choice each and every moment of every day where we are going to make every effort. And so there's this interesting tension and kind of circular effect, a beautiful tension between God's grace and our effort. Okay, moving on. We're almost at the finish line. He goes on in verse eight to say, and we're gonna skip some of the additional named character qualities of virtue that we are to make every effort to add to our faith. Virtue, knowledge of God, self-control, perseverance, godliness. That's part of that circle right there that's so interesting. We are to make every effort to add to our current faith godliness, but at the beginning of this passage, it says it's his divine power that has given us everything we need for godliness. So there's the tension right there. I love it. God's grace makes godliness possible. And then when we respond in real relationship and make every effort, godliness becomes a reality. Goes on to all those other ones. For if you possess these things, verse 8, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh, this language is so amazing. Very clearly, God's grace has made it possible, if we're following his flow of thought, the flow of the argument, God's grace has made it possible to aim as high as we could possibly imagine, which would be knowing Christ to partake in his nature. And what does it say here? If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, there's God's will for your life, for the rest of your life. In increasing measure, the qualities of Christ, the qualities of godliness, in increasing measure, there's some vision for the rest of your days on earth till God calls you home or, or, or returns. In increasing measure to become like Christ, there's your vision. Could you aim possibly any higher? Could there be greater motivation than knowing that it's God's will and his grace, the power of heaven, is backing you up so that in increasing measure, you possess the qualities of Christ? That's good news to get you up in the morning. I love that word, increasing measure, because I think it highlights the process, that there's grace for the process, that it's, you know, this size, then this size, then this size. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger every day. And as we are communing with and abiding in Christ and spending time with him and coming to him in our weakness and asking him for his strength, that there will be an increasing measure of his character in us. And again, there's no condemnation for where we're not like Christ. We don't want to throw everything out and give up or condemn ourselves because all that does is it puts whatever part of our character isn't like him. It puts that part of that in bondage and it hides it away, away from his light and away from his transforming power. So shame and guilt is a tool of the enemy to keep us stuck in low character bondage and affliction because those things don't feel good, do they? When we have stuff that, you know, it doesn't line up with the goodness of God and the character of God. You know, when I have fear, I don't have it. When, I, when I'm full of fear or anxiety or worry or anger or just grumbling and complaining, I'm not having a good day, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I actually want to read this verse as well because... These verses right here also highlight the process, and I just think it's so important for us to be aware as we have this call from Christ to Christ-like character that we just continually are aware of his grace. We are aware of the reality that it's in, his weak, it's in our weakness that he is made strong in us, that he is our strength, that this isn't because we're, you know, digging our feet in and saying, I've got this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to muster up Christ-like character. That is absolutely not the process. It's the abiding in the vine. It's the heavenly exchange. It's God, this is all I've got. This is what I know. Show me your ways, Jesus. Teach me your paths. What's your truth about this situation? 
What do you want me to stand in faith for and believe instead of just being riddled with anxiety about the future? What are you saying to me so that I can partner with you? And, and what do you want to give me in exchange for this fear, for this anger, for this timidity, for this unhealthy insecurity? He always wants to give us something in exchange, and it's never in our own power or in our own strength. So there doesn't need to be a feeling of, I need to muster this up. And I want to read these two verses because I just think they're fabulous to demonstrate that this is a process. This, is, this verse talks about increasing measure. So this is Matthew 13, 31. He put another parable before them saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in, in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So what we're seeing here is we have little seeds that are planted in a field that look like nothing. And then they're watered and then they grow and they continue to grow. So we don't want to despise the day of small beginnings and we don't want to condemn ourselves and short circuit the work that God is doing. We don't want to condemn ourselves when we only see maybe a small portion of the fruit that we want to see, maybe a small portion of the character change. But this is amazing because if you think about yeast even, when you put yeast in, in the flour, it's a gradual process of all of it becoming, you know, this word is leavened, yeasted, whatever you want to say. There's a transformation that takes place and it's a process and I think it's beautiful here that not only does this verse talk about the increasing measure, but these verses very specifically highlight that there is a process, and in that, in that process, there is no condemnation. That's a good word. One other point on verse 8 here. It's a, it's a fun one. As it says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they these qualities of Christ, will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is kind of that you can know about Jesus, you can know that information about Jesus, but be ineffective and unproductive if you're not becoming like Jesus. And it goes back to the very beginning. It's through knowing him, through that intimacy, that abiding, that we, it's not just information where you could pass a Bible quiz and then still be completely ineffective and unproductive. <laughs> it's about knowing him so that you're not. And there's this really great word in here where it says, so if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective. Christ-like qualities will keep you from being ineffective. But, interestingly, the word itself where it says they will keep you from, that word is to be put in charge of. And so if you actually insert that instead of keep you from, which kind of has a sense there, you can see, but I like much more kind of the offensive power yeah of when you're abiding in Christ and growing in his Christ-like qualities, you have an offensive power about you to overcome 
those, that moral deterioration, that, those impulsive desires that make you ineffective and unproductive. So it, it reads like this. So keep you literally means put you in charge of. So if you read it, when we make every effort to grow in our character and these qualities are increasing, it puts you in charge of not being ineffective or unproductive. It puts you in charge. That's a cool sense. That's that same sense that Paul was talking about last week in 1 Corinthians 9 where the importance of self-control puts you in charge over those impulsive desires. You don't want them controlling you. If they're controlling you, you're not in charge. You're being you know, blown by every whim and impulse and desire into places you don't want to be. And, and so it's this place, it's this place of kind of, of being beat up with weakness. You're controlled by those desires. And this is going on the offensive, saying when you pursue Christ, when you get to know him, when you abide in him and are growing in his character, it puts you in charge of not being ineffective or unproductive. So that's a cool sense. I mean, isn't that appealing? Like, I want to be in charge of that. <laughs> I don't want to be controlled by impulses to where at the end of my life, I'm like, yeah, I was ineffective and unproductive, but I was just kind of controlled by all these impulses. Who wants that? Aim high. Aim high as you possibly can to partake in that nature of Christ so you're in charge of being productive and effective in what you know of Christ. And when we say in charge, it's our choosing. That's not saying that the power comes from us. That's saying, God, I choose you. I choose to have this heavenly exchange of your character growing and changing my very inner being, my inner core. So it's not, it's not this unhealthy, well, I've got it. I've got it, God. I'm in the driver's seat. You can sit in the back seat and I'll check in with you every so often if I need help with the directions. This is utterly dependent upon him every moment like a child would talk to their daddy you know my dad's here when I was a little kid he was one of my favorite people he was like my favorite person I mean my mom's my favorite person too but I both of them equal I loved going places with him well I'm seeing him but I but I I remember that childlike feeling we would leave the house together all of the time and we would just go on adventures he would take me to the track and we would run, we would run the track together when I was what, dad, four? <laughs> but I loved going places with him. And even though he's the adult, he's the father and I'm the child, there's this, there's a, there, there's this, carefree nature of a child with a father that God is inviting us to where we're not, when I was with him, I'm not beating myself up that I can't run the entire, you know, my lap that he's running. I would run my little bit and he'd go, Donnie, good job. Good job. Thank you. And I'd sit down and rest. And he was teaching me. He was teaching me to run. He was teaching me to exercise. He was teaching me these good values that have served me well my entire life. But there wasn't, it, it wasn't in my own strength. And so I just think that's a beautiful picture for us that 
this verse is awesome, that we are in charge of it, that means we have the choice to say, I want to be your child. I want to be with you. I want to be on this adventure with you. And I want you, I, I accept your invitation to walk with you as a child and to have you as my father showing me the way in this process that's just so grace-filled and beautiful and, and joyful and childlike. That's good. That's good. One other verse that it parallels very well is where Paul says in Romans 8, I am no longer a slave to sin. We got to believe that. If you don't believe that, then you're making a prediction over your life that's probably going to come true. That's what this is saying. It's the same, it's the same thing. We're saying if you follow Christ, you aim high, you get to know him, you stay with him, you abide in him, then you're in charge. There, there's a, it's the power over the vice. It's that you're not just a slave anymore where it controls you and you're ineffective and, and unfruitful because it has, that vice has such a grip on you. It's saying the same thing. It's saying in Christ, no, you are over, you're going to overcome that. You're going to be in charge of that. You're going to have the power to say no to whatever it is that's going to lead you down that path of moral deterioration. And so that's, to me, where there's this encouraging teeth in it, is to say we in Christ don't have to make any proclamations that, oh, I'm a slave to that sin for the rest of my life. It doesn't say that anywhere in the New Testament. In fact, it says the opposite. Things like this. The more we abide in Christ, follow, be with him, we get to be in charge saying no to those things that are going to drag us down. Yeah, I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke something on that to me yesterday. And the word was saying no to self-limiting agreements, ideals, standards, character flaws you know, there's so many times, this verse is talking about the power of Christ to transform every single part of us. So there's nothing that is impossible for God. And, and when we leave something that we've, say, struggled with for a long time, when we leave something, you know, let's just leave that in a closet because I tried for a little while. Usually it's because we tried on our own and we didn't walk in fellowship, and we probably didn't fully live out the things that God has laid out for us on how to live victoriously, because being vulnerable with one another and having prayer for those things from one another, and just there's all sorts of stuff walking it out, but my point is that there are things, where we, oh, that, that's just my cross to bear. Oh my gosh, people use that verse out of context all of the time. Jesus never said, you have terrible character and that's your cross to bear he said i want to transform you from one degree of glory to another so that you can live out and experience my character and my nature within you so we need to be cautious of those agreements and i have a problem with like the aa meetings because of that my name is so and so and i'm an alcoholic Oh, don't declare that over your life. Sure, you can take the precautions and say, hey, you know what? I've struggled with alcohol and I'm not going to touch it. But I'm not going to declare over myself that I'm in bondage to alcohol for the rest of my life. God wants me to be free. 
He died for me so that I could experience his freedom and his victory, and he is a victorious warrior, and he wants me to be like him. And he's leading us in a triumphant, in a triumphant procession, like it talks about in Hebrews. He leads us in triumph. So we need to be cautious of those mindsets that are self-limiting. Or, or things that we don't even go to God about because it's just like, well, we've had that issue for so long. I've had anxiety for so long. I've had this for so long. I've had this character issue for so long. I just get mad. There is absolutely nothing that is impossible for God. And, and he is so powerful. And as we continue. Hmm? Let me speak to that real okay. quick. Exactly what she's saying is the next verse. Whoever does not have them, verse 9, so what's them? The increasing measure of Christ-like character qualities. Listen to this. Whoever doesn't have them, increasing character qualities of Christ, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So it's exactly what she's saying. Two things here. This, and by the way, the sense of nearsighted and blind is, it's, that sounds weird. You're, are you blind or are you nearsighted? It's saying, in, the sense of it in the Greek is that you're so nearsighted, it's blinding you. And so think about that. What's the opposite of having huge, huge, as big as you could possibly imagine vision? Being so nearsighted on a particular sin that is causing you problems, that you're blind to the vision that God has as a gift of grace that's possible. And if you're going to be so nearsighted that you're blind to the possibility of increasing in Christ-like character qualities for the rest of your life, then it also says not only are you nearsighted, but you forgot that you've been cleansed, not just forgiven. Cleansed means purified from past sins. Now, you may still need to live into that and walk into that, but that's what it's saying. It's like, wait a second, you forgot who you are. You forgot what Christ did. He not only forgave you of your past sins, he's cleansed you from all of them. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So you need to live into that. So it's right here, those, those two pieces. We don't get caught up in the moment of a sin or a vice to the point where it keeps us from the vision. It's so we're getting blinded and we're forgetting who we are, which is totally cleansed, a new nature in Christ. And that's what we get to step into. Can we close in prayer? I want to just share a very practical, quick testimony about, um, hopefully this isn't embarrassing him, our oldest son. And this is, this is specifically about him pressing into God, just really walking with God all day and asking for help. And about the transformation of his nature, of his character and innermost being, where it seemed completely impossible to him in the past. So I'm gonna share two quick things. One is that he was born on the earth an introvert, where he needed his, he needed his time and his space to refuel. And so he's a server at a restaurant, a very busy restaurant. He works, sometimes he works two, he works, works doubles 
two shifts in a day regularly. And so being a server is a job where you are always living out life as if you are an extrovert. So to him at first, this was draining, but he, God's just grown him in capacity and, you know, he's fantastic with people, but he, when he got off work, he was just done. And he would go to the grocery store and just wouldn't even have the energy to say hi to anybody. He was just like, I'll just hide in my bubble and just rehabilitate from my day of extroversion, right? And he said to me the other day, mom, I've been, you know, I make sure that I read my Bible and I connect with God and pray before work so that I can be filled with strength. And throughout the day, he's just talking to God. He's communing to, with God. And he said, mom, I can't believe it. My, I feel like, his words were, I feel like I'm evolving. And, and, but that transforming from one degree of glory to another. And what he said is, when I get off work now, I can go hang out with friends. And I can talk to people at the grocery store and it's not forced, it's overflowing out of me because I'm always, I'm always filled up by God and he's changing me and giving, more, giving me more capacity. And this kid has been bound by these things. Just, oh, I'm so exhausted. I can't go. I, already, I went to a party this week. I need to take a week off. But, but those, were, those were real struggles. And that was, it seemed like a complete impossibility to his nature. And I want to give one other example, and this is just a practical testimony on us just really going after these little things that creep in. So God was speaking to him about his life and promises and future, and he said he's always had this doubt that comes in. Oh, maybe I'm not hearing God. This isn't really God. And then instead of just saying, oh, I'm just going to ignore that. I'm going to forget the doubt. He's like, okay, God, this isn't good. I'm supposed to be living in communion and faith with you. And he just said really simply, he, said, he told me his exact words were, God, what are we going to do about this, this doubt? And he heard the Holy, say, Holy Spirit say, celebration. Like God was telling him, when you have doubt, here's an action step. Celebrate that you're my child and you hear me. Because sure, we can always hear him wrong, and we need to test that. You know, the Bible says to test prophecy, to test the words we hear from him. So yeah, no, everything's not going to be right. But instead of being riddled with doubt and being shut down, celebrate that you're his child and that you hear him. And for the things that you are certain on, celebrate those words. Thank you, God, that you are going to transform this situation instead of being filled with doubt and having that shut down. So those are just two very specific encouragements that as we go about our daily life, that the impossible is possible with God. Even with our deep, with the depths of us that seem like a major inside character flaw or just weakness, that he has the power to strengthen us from within, to fill us with strength and victory, and to make us live in 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 triumph in every area where we feel weak. Amen, amen. That was worth it. <laughs> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to receive right now this truth and ask your Holy Spirit to empower it, that your divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowing you. May it come to pass in increasing measure to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I will sing a new song.